So after that pretty intense teaching about stumbling blocks, both being them and stumbling over stumbling blocks that other people set, Jesus' disciples beg him to, quote, add to their faith. It's interesting to me that the Greek word here is the one we get our word prosthesis from. This add to word is from the same root. It's like when someone has an injured limb and needs the help of a mechanical one. And it's also interesting to me that right here, Luke refers to the disciples as apostles, meaning the ones sent, not the ones following. The apostles are nearly ready to go on without Jesus' physical presence. Jesus tells them they've got all they need. He says, If you have faith, even as tiny as a mustard seed, you can say to this tree right here, uproot yourself and plant yourself in the sea, and it will obey you. Jesus tries to explain that this is not because, you know, the apostles are magic or special in any way, but simply because this is how the Holy Spirit works through them in the world. I think he can see the doubt on their faces (laughs) because he gives them another example. He says, if someone has a servant plowing or tending your flocks and he comes in from the field, would the master tell him, oh, come sit down at the table, come recline at the table? No, of course not. The master would say, go get dressed, prepare my dinner and serve it, and then you may eat and drink. Will the master thank the servant for simply doing his job? That is the sort of servant you must be. And when you have done all that is given to you to do, then in humility say, we are useless servants. We have done only what we were duty bound to do. Well, that gives the disciples something to ponder as they trudge along the road with Jesus. When we last saw Jesus, he was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall. But that has ended, and he's now back home in Galilee. Jesus lives in Capernaum on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. And now, at least in Luke's chronology, which is the one we're following, he's heading back down to Jerusalem. They've just gotten to the border between Galilee and Samaria. Jesus and his entourage are nearing a village, and on the outskirts are 10 lepers. When they see Jesus, they shout, Jesus, master, have pity on us. They use an interesting word for master here. It's not the normal one, but it's one that has more of an idea of commander associated with it. And of course, Jesus stops the parade. He always stops. People are not an inconvenience to Jesus, to God, or to the Holy Spirit. And they should not be an inconvenience to us either. People are why we are here. To Jesus, people are more important than whatever else he may be doing. People are more important than program, always. Jesus not only hears them and stops, it says He sees them, and he simply says, go, show yourselves to the priests. Now, that's what they would do if they were healed, right? But they're not healed at this point. They still have leprosy. 
Nevertheless, they go to do what Jesus told them. Now think about that for a second. Where would the local priests be? In the village, right? Those lepers would have joined the procession following Jesus into town. In their eagerness, would they have limped ahead of the crowd? What must have been going through the minds of all the rest of the followers who, you know, don't want leprosy? But as they go, the lepers are healed. The Greek puts it beautifully. And in the going, they were cleansed. It was in doing what Jesus called them to do that they were healed. Jesus has so consistently made it clear that it is our own faith that heals us. Believing that God wants us to be whole and healed is all that is necessary. Of course, our bodies fall ill, decay, and die regardless of our faith. But somehow, God can make us truly whole if we will only let go and let him. One of the men, realizing he's been healed, turns back, maybe even before he's gotten to the town. And glorifying God with a loud voice, he falls on his face at Jesus' feet and thanks him. The text notes that this man was a Samaritan. He wasn't even a Jew. And yet he had done exactly what Jesus had told him to do. He had gone to show himself to the priest. I think this is a really important point because I think there are only two possible interpretations here. Either this Samaritan was willing to show himself to a Jewish priest which I think is possible, but unlikely. Or this was a Samaritan village with Samaritan lepers outside of it. And Jesus had instructed the lepers to show themselves to the priest, knowing that they would show themselves to a Samaritan priest. Now, remember that Jews thought Samaritans were the worst kinds of apostates, heretics, but both Jews and Samaritans considered their own selves to be Jews. They just had different priests and other slightly different, slight variations in their texts. And here Jesus is not only healing this Samaritan, but sending him to his priest in accordance with the law. I I don't think it matters to Jesus what kind of priest they show themselves to. I think what matters to Jesus is their faith that God has healed them, and that this act of humility is an outward act of acknowledging God, however it is they understand him. Jesus says to the man, wait, weren't all 10 of you cleansed? What happened to the other nine? Is it only this one foreigner who has returned to glorify God? And Jesus says to him, arise, go forth, your faith has healed you. And that word translated healed is the exact same word as saved. Same word. Being saved means being healed and made whole. As Jesus travels to Jerusalem, he continues to teach his disciples with his final parables. As they draw nearer to Jerusalem, we see the interactions with Pharisees begin to, you know, pop up again as well. The Pharisees continue to ask trick questions. 
This time they ask, when will the kingdom of God come? Now they know that the Hebrew scripture is not specific about when the day of the Lord will be, nor when the Messiah will come. They do believe both things happen simultaneously. So if Jesus thinks he is the Messiah and he's here right now, he will have to say that the day of the Lord has come already, right? But Jesus says, the kingdom of God is not something you can point to. It's not something you can see. The kingdom of God is inside you. I'm not sure we always remember that. The kingdom of God is inside you. Then he turns to his disciples and tells them, days are coming when you will wish I were here, but I won't be here. Now, I'm paraphrasing the Greek here to try to capture the sense of what Jesus is, is saying. This particular sentence doesn't translate smoothly into English. Jesus is telling them that the day is coming when they're going to be looking for him and they won't be able to find him. Jesus says, people will tell you, oh, there he is, or here he is. But don't be taken in by that. Don't go running to and fro trying to find me. When the day comes, meaning the day of the Lord, that's what this whole conversation is about. The son of man will be like lightning flashing from one end of the sky to the other. But first he must suffer and be rejected by people like this. You can tell from how Jesus words this that even though he's talking to his disciples, the Pharisees are hovering around, listening intently for any sort of heresy. Jesus has to call himself the son of man and talk about himself in the third person. Nevertheless, Jesus plows ahead. He says to his disciples, it will be just like it was in the time of Noah. People will just be going about their lives as normal, eating, drinking, getting married, just like they did until Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. The same thing happened in the time of Lot. People were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But the day Lot came out of Sodom, fire and brimstone rained down from heaven, destroying them all. That's what it will be like on the day the Son of Man is revealed. When that day comes, if you are on the roof of your house, don't run inside for your possessions. If you're out in the field, don't go home for anything. Remember Lot's wife who turned back towards Sodom and was turned into a pillar of salt. Whoever tries to preserve their life will lose it, and whoever loses it will come out alive. This is so interesting. Some Bibles translate that word preserve as save. Whoever tries to save their life will lose it. But it's a completely different word here. The word is preserve, which is exactly how we think of salt being used, right? If we try to use God's power to preserve ourselves for our own benefit and power and prestige, we will end up losing life. And that bit I've translated as come out alive in the Greek literally means will be preserved alive. It is a rarely used word. And look at the wordplay here around salt. We let go of our lives. We commend our lives into the hands of God in complete trust that God will preserve our life 
regardless of what happens to our bodies. We are the salt of the whole earth. That is who we are, but it is only who we are in God. It's not something we can do by ourselves or even for ourselves. Jesus continues, I tell you, on that night, there will be two people in the same bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding grain at the same place. One will be taken and the other left. This is one of those passages used as so-called proof that there will be a rapture of some sort where the good will be plucked from the earth and the wicked left behind. But I'm not sure that's what Jesus is saying here. For one thing, he's talking about the day of the Lord. It's cataclysmic and widespread, and the suffering definitely includes those in Jerusalem. The prophecies say so. From the descriptions in prophecy, it's pretty apparent that lots of innocent people are going to die that day right along with the wicked. I think what Jesus is saying here is that there won't be any safe place to hide. I don't think he's making any value judgment about the two people. We've shellacked that meaning onto his words over the centuries. In fact, this phrase could be translated as one being taken alongside and the other left alone, or even the other being forgiven, which is actually how this particular word is most often translated. I I personally think it, the image that comes to mind is like we just had this big explosion in Paris uh, this week. Uh, and, you know, a bunch of people were injured and a bunch of people weren't. That's what Jesus is talking about. I don't think it's a value judgment. I think the simple meaning is that your bunker isn't going to save you. No matter where you are, the day of the Lord will reach you. And that makes sense with what he just said about not running back home if you're in the field and not going downstairs to get your possessions. And it also helps make a lot more sense out of the next thing the disciples ask him. They ask where? Where will the kingdom of God and the Messiah come on the day of the Lord? It's funny that they ask this, even though Jesus just told them that it's not going to matter where you are, it's going to come, that they can't miss it because it will be as obvious as lightning across the sky. They still want to know in advance where it will come. <laughs> but Jesus basically says, you'll know when it happens. He says, where there's a dead body, that's where the vultures gather. So this is heavy stuff. And Jesus keeps unfolding parable after parable into his disciples. He is really pouring it on. He tells them they must always pray, never give up praying. And to illustrate his point, he tells them this parable. Once upon a time, there was a judge who did not fear God, nor did he feel shame. This word can also mean feel respect towards others. This judge sounds like a sociopath to me, someone who has like no conscience, no feeling of guilt, and who does whatever he thinks is in his own best interest, regardless of the consequences for others, even if it involves lying or bullying. In this same town, Jesus says, there lived a widow. She had a case before this judge, and she came to him over and over 
asking him to avenge her against her adversary. But he kept refusing her. Nevertheless, she kept coming back. No matter how often he refused, she kept coming back with her plea. Finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or respect other people, this widow is wearing me out. I will avenge her, so she will stop. And Jesus says, listen to what the unjust judge says. That word unjust, by the way, is the exact same word as unrighteous. They are the same thing. Jesus is saying that if this unjust judge is worn down by the widow's petitions, how much more so will our own just and righteous God hear our pleas? Jesus says, won't God vindicate his favorites, the ones crying out to him day and night? Will he not be patient with them? I tell you for sure, he will vindicate them quickly. Then it sounds like Jesus becomes a little pensive, asking his disciples, and yet when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth at all? Then Jesus turns to some of the self-confident people listening in, people who were confident that they themselves were certainly righteous. And Jesus says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and in an advantageous place, he began praying, oh God, I think Thank you that I am not like the rest of the people, greedy extortioners, unjust, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast every week and give a tenth of everything I acquire. While the tax collector stood all by himself, not even wanting to lift his eyes towards heaven, striking his breast and saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is the same word for sinner that is used throughout the New Testament. It means one who falls short, one who misses the mark widely, who sins blatantly. And this poor man feels all that weight on his heart. And yet, Jesus says, this is the one, this tax collector who went back home declared righteous, justified. For everyone exalting themselves will be humbled, but the one humbling themselves will be lifted up. People, of course, in addition to bringing their sick friends and relatives, are also bringing Jesus their children so he can place his hands on them. But the disciples, apparently seeing this as frivolous, rebuke the parents and won't let the children come to Jesus. But Jesus is indignant. He calls the children to him and says, the kingdom is for such as these. I tell you for sure, whoever will not enter the kingdom as a little child does shall not enter it at all. Well, at this point, Jesus is ready to get back on the road for Jerusalem. 
Just then, a man runs up to Jesus. Luke calls him a ruler or commander of some sort, but Matthew and Mark just call him a man. The man kneels and asks Jesus, good teacher, what can I do so I will inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus has heard this question before. Last time, it was a trick question from a high-ranking expert in the law. And that time, Jesus asked the lawyer what he thought the law said he must do. And the man answered with what we now call the greatest commandment. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and with all your mind. And you must love your neighbor as you love yourself. But Jesus responds to the question differently this time. This time, Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't say something's true that isn't. Honor your father and mother. And the man says, I have vigilantly observed these since I was young. And Jesus replies, well, there is only one last thing then. Sell everything you have and hand it over to the poor and the desperate, and you will have a storehouse of treasure in the heavens. Then come and follow me. Wow, I don't think it's every day that Jesus offers a job to someone as his disciple. People follow him all over the place, but being his student, his disciple, is something special. But hearing this, the man becomes deeply grieved, for he is extremely wealthy. And Jesus, seeing his response, also becomes deeply grieved. He says, how difficult it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the wealthy to enter the kingdom. Now, you may have heard that Jesus didn't mean the actual eye of a sewing needle, but meant a small gate in the walls of Jerusalem. But that is a myth that has been thoroughly debunked. Jesus means exactly what it sounds like he means. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a sewing needle than for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Not because God doesn't want them or doesn't make a way for them, but because they cannot let go of their wealth and power and comfort it gives them. It reminds me of experiments with a, you know, with a, a, a monkey, I think, and having a treat inside of a jar. And he would reach his hand in and grab the treat and then couldn't get his hand out the, the mouth of the jar. And the, the monkey would rather starve than let go of that treat and get his hand out of the jar so he can escape. That's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus has always taught that you cannot love both money and God. You will worship one or the other. The people listening ask him, well, then who can be saved? Notice that the word saved is in relation to a question about entering the kingdom of God. Jesus has consistently taught that the kingdom of God is here now. We are called to enter it now, just like Jesus is calling this rich man to become his disciple now. And Jesus says, the things people are unable to do, God has the power to do.
That is so comforting. Even if we are having trouble letting go of our wealth and power, it sounds as if we can turn to God and say, I believe, help me in my letting go. And God will do the impossible. Then Peter pipes up. He's quite obviously becoming a leader among the disciples, isn't he? No wonder Jesus said that on Peter, he would build his ecclesia, his community of believers. Peter says, well, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus says, I tell you for sure, anyone who has left home or wife or siblings or children or parents for the sake of the kingdom of God will receive many times as much in this time and in the age to come, they will receive eternal life. Well, that's pretty interesting. And there were some new terms that um, popped up this time that I think Christians have a lot of baggage around, and those are the terms justified and and elect. And so I thought it might be fun to um, talk about those in our breakout groups. Great. Looks like everybody's back. So I hope this was an interesting discussion. Um, I don't know that we talked a lot about justified and elect. Um, the first, the first uh, question said that Jesus says the tax collector was the one who went home justified and that the Greek word, as I pointed out, means be declared righteous and that righteousness in Greek is synonymous with justice. Um, So being righteous means being just, being correct, being innocent. Um, And uh, I just asked, you know, This tax collector makes his living extorting money. That's how he gets his his money. So he, he, but Jesus said he went home justified. What does Jesus mean by that? How could he be justified? What does justified seem to require according to Jesus? I had to miss a lot of the breakout groups. I have a work emergency, but. Um, one of the things I offered, and I don't know what was done with it, is that innocence may not be like law and order innocence, which is what comes to mind for me because of my work, but more like the innocence of the children parable that we discussed, you know, being open, being willing, being wanting to explore and understand. Wow. We hopped from that or took, took a step from that to um, honesty and children, uh, which we didn't really comment on so much, but children are honest. And that was what the tax collector was, was honest. But he wasn't um, so before. He was correct. But he had a change of heart. I don't know. He's still a tax collector. Right. Yeah, but before he was cheating people. And after, I'm assuming this is like Zacchaeus. That but that's an assumption. That's him. not in the text. Yep. I mean, he's he was a tax collector. He's still a tax collector when he leaves. And I've never taken the tax collector to be the wealthy man who wouldn't give up his riches like the other guy. He works for somebody. And he recognizes that what he does is not 
is probably not just. And how do you how do you justify taking from people who are barely making it their taxes to give to the wealthy people that he works for? I'll tell you, Joe, I am. I deal with that in my work Mm -hmm. before I came to to public service. When I was in private practice, there were things I had to do that didn't set well with my conscience always. And I had to come to an understanding that if I did my part to the utmost and every one of the other players in the arena did their part to the utmost, we would find a just reason and a just solution to the issue. Um, So I have always believed in doing my utmost, even when it's something that is difficult for me. Sure. Um, I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm just saying that I've always taken it maybe differently than other people did. I've always taken the tax collector as a worker and he's doing his job, but he knows his job maybe bringing harm to some people, especially if he sees the people he turns the money over to mishandling it. So I guess for me, that's, that's what I saw is just the tax collector um, being very humble and setting his ego aside. Martha, I saw you had a comment. And when Joy was talking about her, her work situation, um, Sharon Rangman, can you get a little closer to your mic? Um, yeah. yeah, the pastor at the church I used to go to told the story of a man who was in her congregation who was very successful um, working for one of the largest um, beer, beer, beer companies in the world. And he really struggled over that harm can happen through his work. Harm can happen doesn't always happen, but it certainly can. And he ended up being behind the Drink Responsibly campaign. And this tax collector, there's a lot that's unjust in there. Julia's point of doing Mm -hmm. her utmost. Joe's point, doing a job he's getting paid to do. Whatever we think about our taxes, whatever they thought about taxes back then, presumably some things did get done with those taxes. The Romans built roads and aqueducts. That we still use. (laughs) It wasn't all bad. So to make the tax collector out as only and all bad is, to Joe's point, probably unfair. And most tax collectors took a little off the top. They had to. That's how they got paid. But um, this tax collector recognized the fact that he was a sinner, that he had need of a savior or of salvation or of whatever word you want to use there. Forgiveness. Yeah. Mercy. That's what he was asking for was mercy. The Pharisee didn't recognize it. The Pharisee's like, I'm a good person. And the tax collector was like, I'm a sinner. Yeah. Okay. And how does that all line up with the story about the rich man who, you know, followed all the rules his whole life, wanted to follow Jesus, and then couldn't give away his money? 
Um, do you see any link between these two? Yeah, he's not being very honest with himself, is he? <laughs> he's not being very honest with himself. I think his wealth was more important to him than God. He's trying to make it look like, or maybe it did mean a lot to him. He wanted to go to heaven, but he wanted to go on his terms. Opposite of Joe, I thought he was also being kind of honest with what, whereas I thought he was also being kind of honest. He was saying, I, I don't know if I can do this. Oh, sure. I mean, honest about that, but I don't know that he's been, and maybe misled because he thought doing the things saved him. And what if we look at this as, as layers rather than black or white binary? What if we look at this like layers um, where, where he, he could get the, Ten Commandment layers, you know, but somehow the riches get closer to our hearts and closer to our identity. Anybody you read Richard Rohr's uh, work where he talks about the two halves of life? Um, and I may not be getting this completely correctly, but he talks about the first half of life, wherever you put that divider is about providing, is about acquisition, is about um, figuring out how to make your way in the world. And the second half of life is figuring out what of that you didn't, you no longer need or don't really need. And so um, Richard Rohr might look at the rich young man as in that first half of life, which Rohr does not condemn. I was gonna say, when we talk about this, how many of us would be willing to give it all away right now and go out and be missionaries or whatnot? I honestly, I I spent a lot of time acquiring my craft stuff. <laughs> okay. I am putting together a craft room and I will be giving away, but it will be a very difficult process. I know that. I know that about myself. I will be sharing with people who will give it a good home and love it, but it's still hard to get there. Yes, Gail, Joe, many people. <laughs> but at the same time, isn't that what it is about Giving it willingly. Mm -hmm. I'm not quite to the willingly part. I'm still struggling with the, do I need this? Is it important to me part? So it's, it's an, a progression and an evolution of understanding, I think. Um, I told the story in our group about there is a homeless person that my husband knows very well and we always wave and smile and talk to and she knows him but she doesn't know me well today I had nothing to give her but I rolled my window down and we had a chat and it was the length of a stoplight but and and I worried that I was keeping her from collecting from other people 
but she was blessing me and I was blessing her in that we were having relationship. So we were giving something. It wasn't money. I know she needs money. Her mother is in a nursing home. I know she needs money. I did not have money to give her or a drink or anything at that point. But I had relationship to share with her. And isn't it about we should share what we can and give as much as we can to one another? That's just a thought I had. Yeah. Yep. It's, I mean, it's real. I think your question is really well taken. Um, what is it at the bottom for us? You know, if, if, if we hold our money loosely, if we, you know, I think that, that it doesn't have to be about money. It was for this particular man and it is for many people, but at the core, even beneath money is power. Mm -hmm. The question is power. Mm -hmm. And from where do we derive our power in our relationships with other people? Where do we stand? Are we standing in a place of personal power? Or are we standing in a place of humility? The, the money is just an outworking of that. It's one way that can show up. Right. Okay. So the second term is elect. Um, and this came up in the story of the widow. This is my favorite, favorite one, favorite term. Um, and she's she was just a pest. She pestered that judge until he finally just decided he'd hear her case and decided just to get her off his back. And um, and Jesus says, if this unrighteous judge, meaning this judge who had no interest in actual justice, he really doesn't care about justice. If he will give in to this widow who is powerless, but is persistent, all she's got is time and she's spending all her time pestering him. And and um, if how much more so will God vindicate his elect? Now, elect in Greek means chosen, select, or favorite. So if you've been raised in the church, you may, or as a Christian in any, you know, context, you may have a lot of baggage associated with this word. And I said, you know, try to forget everything that you've been taught about the elect or the arguments you've had or which, how you've decided that. Um, Why do you think God might have, quote, People who are chosen, select, or favorites. That's what the word that Jesus uses here. And and I asked, I gave you a hint. I said, who biblically are the chosen people and what were they chosen to do? Genesis 17, 1, hint, hint. (laughs) (laughs) What did you come up with? It's time to look it up. Oh, okay. But from my recollection, um, in the Old Testament, the chosen people were the Jews. That's but what right. they were chosen to do was for God to bless the world through them. That's right. And that is bringing forth the Messiah. That's right. They bless the world in other ways, too. Ways? Ways. <laughs> Did anyone have a chance to look up Genesis 17:1, which was the first time? This was when the Lord spoke to Abraham. This was the. Yes. The seed. Okay, what'd you have? 
Um, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I'm God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and blameless. Walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, what do you think being blameless means i mean walking before god faithfully and being blameless what does that mean if that's what god's chosen are to do what does that mean golden rule i mean to me it's funny how so many things in the bible keep coming back to that but and that's what i mentioned about the wealthy thing is that how do you how do you consider yourself um, blameless when you're accumulating but you watch other people suffer when you have the ability to alleviate it and that's part of giving up stuff that I think is hard. But in this case, I think that's what he means is, you know, like she said, you're, you're chosen to save people. Go out there and be good to other people. Follow me faithfully. And that's how you. And it's hard. It's hard. It's like putting the camel through the eye of the needle. <laughs> what do you what do you all think? That, that what Joe has described is is an excellent way to view you know what this means she's not the only one anybody have other ideas what does this mean to you I didn't get it till Joe just said that but it all goes down to love God love others okay and in in and the do no harm. Get um, closer, Martha. We can just barely. I don't, know why, I don't know why it's so wacky today. Thank you. Um, I blame and sin. If we want to talk about those together, um, the the injunction for Wesleyans is to do no harm. It's to to not take advantage. To um, which is a, a way of saying love one another, to love love the others, but to not do damage, not do damage to yourself or to other people. Some sins theoretically are private sins, but generally sin damages community. And so live... not only damages community it damages you if it is private sin mm-hmm. and then you aren't your fullest you aren't your best right to you offer to others guilt. when mm-hmm. you when you walk around feeling defeated it impacts your ability to spread joy and the good word not necessarily with words <laughs> preach okay. but not necessarily with words yes please yes y'all are circling around it y'all are get you all of these things are you're definitely you're definitely in the ballpark here this is all good stuff any any more ideas what does walking blameless walking faithfully and being blameless mean to you just trust have faith and trust mm-hmm. like the lepers believe and you will be healed in your believing in your faith 
Yeah, I love that part where they just, they they aren't healed. He says, go as if you were healed. Walk as if you were healed and go and show yourself to the priest. Walk so, as if we're saved. Pardon? Walk as if we're saved. Yes, same word. Sozo. Yes, same word mm-hmm. in the Greek. But this Hebrew verse we're talking about in Genesis 17.1 is, it, it's not in Greek, it's in Hebrew. And I think that it, the word to be, to say to somebody to be blameless can be daunting and feel like it's impossible and feel like at the get-go, God set us up for failure. Okay. And so I want to, I'm going to share my screen briefly again. And I'm going to show you what I did with this. Anytime that I um, cannot, you know, anytime something feels not cool, I will go to look at the underlying words. I I like biblehub.com. There are many others. And in that, I just go up here and I type Genesis 17.1 and hit enter. And then I go over here and hit the Hebrew. And it shows me all the whole verse, kind of word by word by word. It says, and when Abraham was 90 years old, 99 years old, then Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. And that's Shaddai. And if um, any of you who are in the Old Testament uh, Hebrew Bible classes, I did a lot of work on what the word Shaddai means and that it is always associated with blessing. Um, I am the God of blessing is what that actually means. I am God Almighty. Walk. Halakha. Okay. Walk. Before me um, in front of my face and be blameless. It's that word blameless that is hanging us up. I mean, and so I go over here and I just click to see what that word means. And that word means to be complete, sound, whole, without just without defect, unblemished, entire, intact, full. Um, Pardon? May I? So is God not saying? I can't hear you, hun. Oh, gosh. So is God not saying, walk before me, be blameless? Two, two not different Two actions. separate or commands, God, yes. Or is God saying, if you walk before me, I will make you blameless? Well, exactly. God. Walk oh. before me. <laughs> Bye, Anne. Be no, blameless. no, I have a question. Oh, question. Okay. Or I have, I have two comments. Because um, I have an issue with this. I was, I was raised to be a worker bee. And it's all about, we need to be working. Save your money. Get your stuff. If you don't work, you're nothing but a bum. <laughs> so I'll, that's just a preface. So if you think about it, to be poor or to be a leper and give up everything for Christ is easy. Because if you follow him 
and he's wrong, you still got leprosy, so what? You got it anyways. If you follow him and you're poor and you don't get anything out of it, you're still poor. You're, you're in the same place. It takes a hell of a lot for someone who is whole or wealthy to have to get rid of their comfort zone. Um, the other thing that bothers me is that, you know, Christ and his disciples relied on the hospitality of others who had. They had a house. They had food, extra food to feed these dudes you know, possibly clothe them, extra space for them to sleep. So if everybody gives up everything and is walking around poor, <laughs> this isn't going to work. So, you know, I think he was a little harsh on the worker bees, but yo, we need worker bees. We need somebody to grow the food. I think what he's saying is the wealthiest of the wealthiest need to be looking at what they can do for others. And I look back, what, like when the United States got started, the wealthiest opened libraries and orphanages and, and hospitals and, and didn't take 12-minute flights up to space for a quarter of a friggin' million dollars. <laughs> and, and so I think that just, just having a house or having cash does not, is not necessarily sinful. But if you have opulence, you should be like, Yo, let's check out those who have nothing. Exactly. <laughs> oh, if we have time for a short story, I have a story to share. Always. Okay, it's, it's a little longer. Um, when I was 18, I was in a very abusive relationship. And I was fearful for my newborn child. Because although I had been in an abusive relationship, my child would not be abused. That was draw the line. And after a bad situation, I told my ex-mother-in-law that I was going to go to a safe place in another city. Okay. And she said, no, wait. Let me talk to my daughter and let's come up with a plan because that's not far enough or safe enough for you. Okay. So my daughter, her daughter, who was my good friend, was married to a man and he had a college roommate in Corpus Christi. So they took me and we just had a, a, an email exchange for the first time in 42 years last night and he used the term kidnap because that was his version of it but he took me to Corpus Christi and I moved in with a family from India and and a white woman so it was a mixed race family which they had their own struggles and they were Christian but he could not the the husband could not make a public profession of faith because of his relationship with his family but they in all intents and purposes were christian and they helped me to find a new direction in life they opened their home asked nothing of me a new direction in life i made a few long wrong turns along the way but ultimately i'm in the best place ever in life and i am so blessed and i am aware of it and happy because of where i've been I had 
on Father's Day, which was my father's birthday, I posted on Facebook a tribute to my father, who was a very difficult person. He had his demons. And I gently worked it out as nicely as I could. And I didn't gloss over his demons. I, I put them out there. And the woman that I lived with, her name was Linda. And I, you know, had a an email exchange and I thanked her for her. Somehow we were talking about the, the redirection of my life through her actions. And she's done this with many people since I was there first. They have a special place for me. <laughs> she shared that with Karen and her husband divorced many years ago. He's remarried 24 years, many years ago. I had no relationship to my friend's ex-husband except through the people I lived with. She shared that relationship with him that night and he reached out to me with such joy. He had been having a low day the day that she shared that and he saw the impact on my life and how it redirected my entire future. And I was able to share with him the place I am now and the things I do in life because of what they did for me. And it's a big domino effect. And it was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful. I wasn't sure how to talk to him last night, but I finished the conversation. And I thought, what do I have to say other than I have a piece of furniture that you created with your hands that I still cherish? And the next thing you know, I got to post that long of an email. There's so much that can just pour forth when you let it happen. And mm -hmm. I think it was all that redirection. I came from absolutely nothing. And I was shown love and I found love and now I can bless others and I hope that I do. There's a lot to be said for viewing all of the things Jesus says from the lens of community. Mm -hmm. I think that we very we have been trained because of our Western worldview to filter everything through a lens of self-sufficiency and individuality. And so we very often interpret scripture through that lens is our personal, you know, but Anne, like Anne brings up a terrific point and Julia has made that point that there is a place in this ecosystem <laughs> for money because it enables help. Jesus was supported by Mary Magdalene and other women, Joanna, you know, several other women of means The the ministry was supported by that. So it's very different um, when you, when you look at it, this, this particular man, um, the, the one, the rich young ruler, the, the, this particular man had the opportunity to give up his life of, of, prestige and position and be one of Jesus students. 
And he chose not to take that path. You know, that's a different thing than if God has placed you where you are, like Julia has pointed out, God has placed her where she is and given her means to be able to help other people. So I think all of all of this is coming around to it's not the money itself that's the problem. Mm -hmm. It's what that wealth represents and how Mm -hmm. we use it and who we think it belongs to. Money isn't evil. It's the love of money that is evil. So when the, the next, the last question was, how did Jesus describe the elect, the, the chosen, the select, and the favorites? And that was in uh, Luke 18, 7. How did he describe his favorites? <laughs> I, I haven't looked at that scripture, but that question makes me think of each one of my children when they try and get you to say that they're the favorite. They're the fave. Yeah, it's a I running discussion in my house. They are the favorite, you know. <laughs> and I'll say it. Favorite, and then I'll give them their name. What does what does Luke 18.7 say? And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night Will he delay long over them? What did so? What were they doing? Crying to him day and night. There you go. The elect are the favorites, the chosen, whatever you, whatever, however you see it, are the people who throw themselves on God. The tax collector day and night. The tax collector, the widow. And what Martha said about what God said to Abram, walk before me and be whole. Throw yourself on me and be whole. This is the relationship God has offered from the beginning. And Jesus is being very explicit about and saying, I don't care how much of a, a sinner you are or think you are or other people think you are. This offer is for you. And I don't care how rich you are. This offer is for you. Very interesting, huh? That's excellent. Mm-hmm. Any more comments before we call it a week? It has been. I really like offers. that widow. You liked I, what the widow? I like the widow and how you explained how she kept pestering the unjust <laughs> judge. You know why? That's how I got my first job in the law firm. I kept pestering HR. I would call him and say, "It's Monday. It's Wednesday. It's Friday." He called me on a Thursday to tell me to start work on Monday. I did it. <laughs> You I worked two widow. jobs. I worked <laughs> two jobs. I had a, a little nothing job, you know, but it it was something. But I wanted to work in a law firm, and I kept pestering the HR person until they gave me a job. I started in the bottom, and I worked my way up. That's great. It's I so started great. out passing out the mail. That works. That's how you learn. Got me right? in the door. 
But the fact that the offer is the same. Yes. No matter if you're on the bottom or you're on the top, the offer is following. Throw yourself on God day and night. That's what matters. All right. Love you all. See you next week. It's so great to see you guys back. See you. See you later. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.